Hello, friends. Welcome to Feed Learning People podcast, a podcast where fellow humans share their vulnerable moments and how they navigated sticky situations throughout their careers. We've all been there, so let's learn from each other. My name is Jesse, and today I'm here with Jonathan Casilli. Woohoo! Yeah. All right, today I get to interview my dear friend, Jonathan Casilli, who is a project manager in the construction industry. In this episode, we talk about his experience joining the dark side of construction management and the behind the scenes work of renovations. He'll also share how he built confidence to talk to strangers, the awkward time he asked for a raise, and how being tall helped his career. Hope you enjoy this episode and check out feedlearning.com slash podcast for the show notes. All right, Jonathan, how do we know each other? Volleyball is what brought us together. Very uh, fortunate and lucky. Volleyball brought uh, a lot of people together during that time. We have like eight couples in our gang of friends who all met through volleyball and are married with kids. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and get straight to it. Can you scan your resume, work your way from when you graduated college to where you are today? Graduated from University of Delaware, go Blue Hens, with a journalism degree. Sports journalism was going to be my goal coming out of school. And I moved home after school to, uh, you know, consolidate and save money and try to pay off my debts and and work Mm -hmm. a little bit at home. And being close to New York City, you know, I was trying to reach out and get into the journalism biz. Really got frustrated with that. So spent basically five years doing everything but that. Mm-hmm. Um, worked at um, a warehouse, uh, J.A. Henkel's Knife Company, doing just terrible work, uh, inventory stuff. And then I um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I ended up becoming a paralegal. And during that time, you know, I had read an article basically that there was going to be a shortage in the construction industry of, for project managers. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I like to be organized. And it was really weird. That's that summer. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the game lawn bolo, but like, uh, no. it's like ladder ball. It's essentially three rungs, and you stand. It's like in a, the game of horseshoes. Uh-huh. Uh, you like one side has one pig. Hillbilly horseshoe. Pretty much, and you're just throwing a bolo, which is oh, like, that's what I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hillbilly horseshoe. So, uh, <laughs> so I had I had all my friends uh, at the time had different kind of skill sets. One guy had like some tools. One guy knew how to tie knots because he was a Boy Scout. Another guy was like a graffiti kid. And so mm-hmm. we ended up making a lawn bolo set from scratch, making the PVC pipe cuts, putting everything together, getting it painted. And like I was running around getting all the materials, telling people what to do. And like that felt really good to me. So this um, construction management thing happened around the same time. And like I reached out uh-huh. to a friend of mine from college, got me the got me a a step like right in the right direction, foot in the door of a company that needed someone who knew how to do computers and uh, was looking to learn. So I ended up becoming like the VP of that company after five years, doing a ton of projects around New York City and Brooklyn. And from that job, I met the company's owner that I work for now. As they call it in the industry, I went to the dark side. When you go from like the GC to the owner's rep, it's like it's like a whole different dynamic of, of power and structure. And so I've been doing that for six years. Okay, and that's where you are today? That's where I am today. So you do construction management, and when you say GC, that's general contractor, right? Correct, yeah. So you said the dark side, going from general contractor to the owner's side? Yeah, so I work for, yeah, the people who purchase the buildings and uh-huh. uh, and underwrite 
a certain game plan for that building as an investment. So it's um, a large multifamily building could have uh, 100 units in it or 360 mm-hmm. units or, you know, 10 units. And so when they buy the building, they increase the value of the building by making the amenities better, making the apartments better, charging more rent and stuff like that. So they need um, skilled professionals to execute on those plans and uh, to, to make sure that the timing works and uh, the budgets that they've set up also uh-huh. work. Why is it called a dark side? I mean, landlords generally are viewed upon as underhanded, selfish um, sleazebags, uh, ah. just, just in general, I think. But these guys are these guys are great, and um, one of the the real struggles for general contractors is getting paid and finishing uh-huh. finishing jobs without having any chargebacks to the contractors for things that happen, delays during work, and where it's basically an excuse for ownership to not pay that contractor. Yeah, and a lot of these contractors are um, you know honest, hardworking people who. By no, you know, fault of their own, they're they're in this industry up against a lot of difficult situations and a lot of unreliable people and and uh, circumstances. So mm-hmm. they oftentimes get, you know, kind of shafted by these owners who, you know, I, I've I've you've heard terrible things in New York City landlords essentially hiring hiring a contractor at a specific price and the landlords know for sure they're not going to pay the last 25% of that contract. Like Uh. they're just not going to pay it. I've seen it where owners have held payment for a year. And Mm -hmm. let's say like, for example, I I owe you as an owner $100,000, you've completed your job. Mm -hmm. I will will hold that $100,000 for a year and tell you as a general contractor, I will give you another job and we'll make it up to you on that one. And then after a year, you have the job, but the same thing happens again. You haven't got paid your 100,000 from the previous job, you know, and there's no recourse of action, really. There's, you know, the it's, it's a bit of a, a dark side. Okay. They intend to get you to a point where you can't continue and they're, they're gonna bring in another person to finish it so that they can get under budget and save money. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not fair, really. What do you find is the hardest part about your job or like the most stressful or most pressured part of your job? The larger projects keep me up at night more often than the smaller projects. Like we added a story to four buildings that are right next to each other. They're four story buildings, these existing buildings, and we added a story to each of them and mm. while the buildings were occupied. And so you're working on top of people. Um, That's scary. It, it was very scary. And like... There's so many moving parts to it that if you missed one little thing, by the time that you catch it, it's too late and it's like this big headache to fix. And so like th- those are the things that caused me the most stress. It's, it's what am I missing? I've had this happen where when you open the mm-hmm. door to a bedroom, for example, the light switch should be on the side where the door handle is, right? So, mm-hmm. like, so the door opens and then you use your right hand or the opposite mm-hmm. hand to open the switch. There's times where electricians just put that switch behind where the door swing opens, right? <laughs> and, and like... That's annoying. And then, yeah, it's annoying. And then they sheet rock and then you're like, oh, crap, where the hell did this light switch go? Oh, it's right here. Oh, now we got to chop open sheet rock. Electrician's got to come back before finish, run his wire to the other side. They got to patch the sheet rock, all this stuff. And it's, that's one of the things that really bothers me. And then one of the tougher things is trying to deal out with a project that's over budget because the underwriting, they didn't put enough money into the okay. project and 
everyone has this pressure to try to still maintain the look of the project, but at like an eighth of the cost. How often do you go over budget? Uh, pretty much every time that there's a project <laughs> that we're looking at, you know. What, what do you do in those situations when you're going over budget? Like how, how do you stay on budget? You always try to one-up the contractor that you find. You're always trying to keep them honest and find the next guy uh, who, you know, fits your project level, whether it's like a high-end job or a, a B-level job. You, you got to find mm -hmm. the right contractor at the right price, you know, you're, and, you're, and you churn. You know, like I, I started a project in New Jersey and where we were buying all the materials and the, the contractor was just labor. And I was hiring painters and plumbers, electricians and floor guys, everybody on our own, which is different from normal projects where you just hire a general contractor and they do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you basically have to, you know, get three door suppliers and have them beat each other up to get each apartment that you need. And, you know, you, I went through probably six or seven Joe Schmo contractors in New Jersey before I came mm -hmm. to the one or two guys who I can consistently kind of rely on. And and even then, I, I split up all the apartments between those two guys. You never want to give everything to one Why person. Not? Uh, I think when they become more comfortable, then errors happen and then change uh. more, more change orders happen. They kind of just get a little careless uh, and, and you can never, if one guy knows he has the, the project, you know, if you ever have to go back to him to get back into budget for whatever reason, you know, mm -hmm. he has no reason to, um, negotiate with you, right? There's no yeah. competition. So if I have another contractor working at the same property at the same time on the same scope, I can always say, Hey, this guy's dropped his price 500 bucks. Do you want this next apartment? You drop your price 500 bucks and it's a no brainer for him, right? It's a, it's a yes. Um, so that. You try to try to keep competition, yeah. Um, and then also materials. I think if you if you can find stuff that looks like what the designers put on paper is durable and um, and you know again it's new uh, and it's it's much cheaper, then you basically have to bring that to um, bring that to the ownership and say, look, I, this saves this much amount of money, and and we need to do it. And and that's uh, how you kind of stay within budget. For most people working, they have projects that they work on. Then they're not necessarily a project manager, but they have uh, mini projects or initiatives, um, some as big as the projects you're working on or some even much smaller. But just in general, like when it comes to project management, what do you think kind of differentiates a great project manager from a good one? The great ones have a lot of experience. So they've um, learned the hard way. I think of the experience mm -hmm. factor, you know, and, and if you're starting out, it's certainly, you, you don't have that experience. Um, so it's tough, but I think uh, organizational skills are, are paramount to everything. I think drive is also very important, just the tenacity to um, push as, as much as you can. Because it can uh, be frustrating, right? You have to like keep on being persistent because sometimes the, many times the projects don't work the way you want it. Absolutely. Certain things come up and changes occur and no one wants the changes to delay the project, but the, the nature of changes is delay. So mm -hmm. you have to keep pushing. Um, you have to be confident um, and uh, knowing the whole process helps as well. So uh, if you don't know, um, if you've not done that specific kind of project before, asking people the willingness to, to study and learn and um, use your connections to just understand the process so that 
Um, if you know every step of the, the, the project, you can have the foresight um, to see mm -hmm. when things are coming up and that helps you remain organized and, and ahead of the game. What are the questions you're asking to get a better scope and landscape of the project? You just ask them how other projects have proceeded. Um, what do you anticipate is um, how this project will go? What do you think some issues might be that come up? Uh, where has been the toughest part of this project that you've seen? Is there anything you suggest I do now to get out ahead of it so later on down the road things are easier for us? Um, and also maintaining that communication throughout every step of the project because things are going to change. People might not think 10 steps ahead when you're having this conversation with them. Some people, mm -hmm. you know, can only go two to three steps ahead at that time, but they know what they're doing. Um, it's just they can't express it to you at that time. Um, so uh, following up and just kind of trying to ask what the next couple of steps are is, is a question I'll always ask. And then, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, the anticipation. The, Anticip of, always uh, trying to anticipate what's coming so that you can be prepared for it and, and also to get your mind thinking about it so you can uh, determine, you know, which course of action to take. And if you have to get approval for uh, the different courses, like you at least do some research on what the different options are to, so then you can bring those options to um, whoever you need to bring it to to get final approval. So you have the upper hand on the negotiation, right? Yeah, I had, a, I had a guy say it to me one time. He said it's like uh, the dark side, like we talked about, uh -huh. is like a faucet, right? And so the faucet's open whenever a project is, is going and you want to get the most out of that faucet until the faucet closes where you know, uh -huh. the project's done. So that's me. I'm controlling the faucet and, and uh, all these people are, are looking at me like I have all the business. This is going to be interesting since you have the upper hand when it comes to negotiations since you're the one that controls the faucet. What are some tips on how to effectively negotiate with someone like you who controls the faucet? Don't try to bribe the person, number one. Don't, okay. ever, don't ever try to bribe anybody. Uh, it's because? Just, it's, not, it's not ethical. It's, uh -huh. uh, it skews the whole relationship. And uh, it's not fair to the project and the owners uh, okay. and, and everybody. Number two, I think um, if you can represent value to a guy like me in cost, right? So if, if you tell me that it's going to cost the company a little bit more, still be in budget, and the work will get done on time, no problems whatsoever, and, and there's no headaches, those are things that you can sell me on that stuff easily. And that's um, the value? The value is the, the no headaches part, even if it costs more? Yeah, cost more in budget and, and no headaches, like though and and finish on time like those are the key tenets of of what drive like my um decision making on selecting a contractor mm -hmm. okay so you, you really have to make me feel comfortable about you know whether it's in the contract or through experience that i've seen you complete projects on time in budget and whatnot mm -hmm. uh i think giving me the introduction to the person who's going to run the project Mm -hmm. almost like 100% of the time I need to see that. And if I don't get that, it's tough for me to give you the job, right? So okay. I, need, I need to see that the person on the contractor's end is responsible and, um, you know, it communicates very easily, is organized and such. And, and then I'll have more confidence that the project's going to move forward. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that and enlightening me that, on that, yeah, yeah, um, Jonathan. Do you ever feel like 
there's a, there's a problem that there's so much going on and you don't know where to start first, but you got to figure it out somehow. Yeah. So how, how do you break it down and like simplify it? So typically when I get that problem, it's being handled by someone else currently. Mm -hmm. And so my first, first thing I do is talk to that person and just get all the information I can out of them as to where they're at, you know, and, and what they, what they've done, who they've talked to, what this person says, what this person needs, where things fall short is, is the number one thing I'm also trying to get out of them is like, where, where are we at right now? And why isn't it moving forward? And, and that's what I try to attack first is why aren't, why aren't we moving forward? So you get the information on the background and attack the, where did we hit a roadblock? And then I reach out to the roadblock and I introduce myself and, and um, you know, first I ask them, do you have time to talk? You know, yeah. that's number one. And then number two is, you know, I, I'm just coming onto this thing and, um, you know, I, I think I can really help push this thing along. Um, and I and I ask them where they're at with this, like what what is their view of it? Uh, and, and just hearing from them, they'll give you a clue to what they need. And, and if typically like there's one small thing that you can take from them and just fix that thing, they'll see in you that you're a human who's just trying to help, right? I, uh, that's been my okay. experience is kind of like, what happens is there's a lot of relationships uh, that are built up to be adversarial in in this industry, like your property manager is not responding to your complaint that your um, appliance doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really, the only thing that they're doing is going back and forth when the property manager is trying to get a company out to fix the refrigerator, but that company is garbage, right? So yeah. the, pro the property managers can't say that to the tenant and the tenant just cares about their refrigerator, right? So like there's a little bit of a, they hate each other for a long period of time. And if you just come in and kind of just say, you know, I'm here to help, I'm here to finish this, what do you need? Like, and then and then you you kind of just take care of it, right? So you're, you're not the person that they've been hating for this time. So I already have the advantage, right? Because I'm, cl I'm clean. Yeah, I like how you, you have those, when there's a problem that you need to fix, you have those uh, questions that you're already asking yourself and you find who that bottleneck is too, yeah. right? And you go straight to that person and just showing that, hey, I'm here to help. I think that kind of eases, like puts everyone's guard down when they know you're just here to help. You're not here to like, you know, throw them under the bus or try to create more problems for people, but you're just here to help. And that kind of just eases them to kind of open up to you and be a more um, collaborative with you as well, I guess. Yeah. It seems like your job, it's a lot of like measure twice, cut once. You have to get it right the first time. If not, everything's gonna be a headache if you mess up. Uh, so I wanna talk a little bit more about like your organizational skills, Jonathan. So you're the type of person who always answers emails and texts. Like since I've known you, you're like, you, you never leave anything unanswered. And Kevin's the one who told me to interview you. He, he said, you're the type of guy to get things done. So you have to have that strong organizational skill. How do you stay organized? Like, do you have a system of staying organized? Thank you for saying all that. That's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, as a contractor, I used to just write every single task down that I needed to write down on, on a pad. And as I completed it, I'd cross it out. And if I didn't complete it, it would stay on there and I would transfer it to a new piece of paper the next day to my new, new list of things to do. That worked for me very well. I think um, 
that was back when I had a BlackBerry and it, there was no real uh, Google Docs or anything mm-hmm. at that time. With this role, I was able to um, optimize a Google Sheet that organized every single building, right? And then the apartments within that building that I'd be doing the projects on. And that enables you to also connect to it anywhere because I'm in the office once a week, right? Yeah. So like I'm running around in the field. I can't, I can't carry around a notepad. It's if I just have my iPhone and the Google Docs thing, I can see at what stage what apartment is at, at any time. And that, uh, that allows me to answer any questions that ownership has about when an apartment's going to be finished. That's number one. And then number two is I keep a clean inbox for my emails Whatever, like inbox zero? Mm-hmm, yeah, I mean, oh. if whatever I have in my inbox now is like um, kind of a, a secondary list um, mm-hmm. on top of the Google Docs thing. It's kind of like more short-term things that I have to do that I might as well not write it down if I just keep it in my inbox and, and I can see it each time I look in my inbox. I know, hey, I got to call this guy about this thing or yeah. file this paperwork or something like that. And, and if I archive everything, I don't sort it. Um, to into mm-hmm. folders or anything like that, uh, but just yeah. just keeping a clean inbox allows me to use the inbox as like a priority list. Yeah, the way that you stay organized, you, you you got your spreadsheets, you got your inbox zero, but like you have to have that mentality to also have that follow through too. Like, is there a certain reason why you're kind of like wired that way? I think ultimately, I feel it comes from my sense of responsibility that I feel like this is me, right? If, if I mm-hmm. do an apartment through a contractor and the owner comes through and he says, why is this this way? And mm-hmm. I go, you know what, you're right. Why is it this way? Like that actually hurts me and, and makes me feel like that I didn't actually do my best there. And I think that that's kind of what makes, gives, gives me kind of this push to really stay on top of everything because in the end of the day, it's my signature on everything. I want to learn a little bit more about your mindset, Jonathan, when it comes to um, how you view people in the world, like when it comes to solving people related problems in the workplace, like disagreements, um, what is your thought process? Let's say like you have a disagreement with one of the general contractors or even your owner. What goes through your mind? How do you generally resolve disagreements in the workplace? You have to take a step back and, and, understand all the parties that are involved and what everybody's kind of near-term goal and long-term goal is in this scenario. I think that uh, if you can assess both parties, because um, well, technically I, I'm part of the ownership, so it's a tricky scenario because mm-hmm. you're representing ownership. But in order to get something done, you have to kind of be on both sides. You have to You have to be the negotiator. You have to kind of get on the GC side for a few things and stay on the owner side for the majority of things just to make things work because otherwise it, it turns into, you know, a, a relationship that could have lasted for 10 years, lasting like two years. Mm-hmm. And, and the last thing you really want to do in the business is have to develop new relationships every year. It just, it takes so long to to do so much effort to do and the amount of brain damage that goes into getting contractors to understand how you do things. It's, it's a lot of extra work. So um, it's easier to retain people than to like acquire new clients and stuff. Is that yeah, what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh-huh. And when, and when you have situations where there's disagreements and whatnot, 
I try to keep that in the front of everybody's head, like just to understand that uh, we can all get through this if we just come to an agreement uh, where where everybody's kind of slightly unhappy. And yeah. my goal is always to remain very flat in very tense situations. I, I try to always be speaking very calmly and levelly leveled, whether it be ownership yelling or or um, the contractor kind of flipping out. Because just just to be that level person and and speak as honestly as I can uh, and. Um, Try not to sugarcoat anything either, because that's not that's not going to help anyone. Like it, like people respect just hearing what it is, and if if I'm giving it to them in a in a very calm way and honestly, like that's always I've always felt like that served me well mm -hmm. um, with everyone I've worked with. Being honest with them, even if it's bad news. Yeah, like we're going we're going through it now um, with the, the COVID thing down in Florida, a project, and and also up here in New Jersey and New York. Like we we can't do work. Uh, yeah, it's not safe, and um, certain scopes of work that we were planning to do, uh, it can't be done either because people aren't paying rent, so there's no money coming in to pay for those capex projects. That's kind of yeah how it works. So it's. Uh, things are slowing down and you have to be honest with these contractors about what the plan is because soon enough you're going to get to that point where you have you have to tell them we're not working anymore right so like mm -hmm. you're, you're better off telling them three months ahead of time when you first found out or when you figured it out that way you rip the band-aid off before it happens mm -hmm. then then it's easier to deal with when it happens and then they respect they respect you for it because the foresight that I had that I decided to kind of give to them, allow them to make moves with their business, right? It, it allows yeah. them to to operate their business. Whereas all of a sudden, if I came up to them and said, look, we're stopping now, I don't I don't care what the F you're doing, like, we're done. You know, like, now they got to scramble and do all these things with, with all their, their payroll, all their workers. And the trickle down effect is, is it's tremendous. And so like, I try Definitely. to always keep that in my head that like all these guys have all the blue collar guys have families and kids and stuff like that. And like, they're the ones who get hurt here if, if I do something that's kind of negligent or, you know. I respect that honesty side because I've dealt with people at work where sometimes if I ask them a question, they they take a long time to respond and I follow up and they take a long time to respond. We're like, oh, I'm still thinking about it. Like it's, it's so wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. But then eventually like a month later, they'll say no or whatever the, the bad answer is. And it's like, you could have just told me from day one, you probably were thinking it, but you just didn't want to give me the bad news because you don't want to hurt my feelings. But it seems like you, you just kind of head on, tell them what's working, what's not working so that they can plan ahead and go from there. Yeah. I am I am like that person you referenced sometimes with like sales <laughs> with salespeople salespeople call me and it's kinda uh -huh. like they're so oh, nice. That's nice salespeople. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can do that to salespeople. <laughs> but yeah, the the honesty part. I, I like that because like people appreciate the honesty. Like just be frank with me. Just, uh, bad news. I'd rather have bad news now than bad news later, basically. So I can uh make my plans from there. Yeah. Um, so your, your current job right now, you said that you knew your manager, your current boss from a previous project, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, somehow you kept a strong relationship where you did something to make him like think of you, to contact you and ask you for referrals or whatnot. Uh, so it f seems like, like building relationships, uh, super important 
and general contracting in this world. And we talked about how like it's harder to find new people than to keep them, right? Yep. Something like that. Yeah. Um, how do you build strong relationships in the workplace? Like what, what do you do to make people think of you and remember you and want to keep on working with you? I think um, explaining my job without complaining, but just to explain like how, how what that person does as it relates to my job, how it enables things to move faster and people to work better and everything like that. And the fact that, that they can have an effect on something that they, have, they know nothing about but it's like this really positive effect. I think it could make them feel good. I guess in my mind, it, I hope it does because what they're doing is enabling me to to work better and enabling everyone yeah. else to work better. So I, I try to um, I try to do that. And um, you know, always saying thank you. Obviously, always be polite about things. Always listen. I think being prepared, like in in meetings, is is a good thing. You're showing people that you know you really have everything under control and and that uh, if, if there's something that I can answer that they're confident in me that I have the ability to get back to them very soon with accurate data and and that they can rely on me I think that's yeah that's the big thing is is to um, not try to hold people up on their work right like if they need something like I was saying earlier like if someone needs something ASAP yeah no problem I'll do that right now you know it's kind of like a favor for a favor is just it's how everything gets done. Hi, everyone. So I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about Feed Learning. Feed Learning is an HR and talent consulting firm that helps build sustainable teams through interactive and virtual training courses, one-on-one -on -one coaching for managers, and HR process improvement strategies. We also have a bunch of free online resources to help you out throughout your career. So check us out on feedlearning.com or follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram. All right, now back to the show with Jonathan. Success, Jonathan, like how do you define success in your career? Salary, title, happiness, What what's success for you? I think success is a balance of being made to feel responsible for your work, uh, feel appreciated for your work, um, feel like you're adequately compensated for your work, and feel like you have enough time to have a life as well. Like that for me was what I wanted so badly to get into. Um, having gotten into these jobs before I got into general contracting and owner representation, it was very clear that I didn't want to go to the same office five days a week and do the same thing five days a week. Um, it was not for me. So finding this kind of job that gives you this kind of balance, like the success is being able to stay in the job, being able to to keep yourself balanced and sane and, and, um, and really feel good about it. I think hearing that I do, that I'm appreciated and that I'm doing a good job, like I will go mm -hmm. to work the next three months at 400% operating level because I hear that. And I know a bunch of other guys in the industry also that feel the same way in my, in my position. It's um, because the work itself is, is uh, you're, you're putting all this, all this effort into all these little details to make sure that nothing is wrong. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And like, to have someone come in and say that one thing is wrong, they just see the one thing that's wrong and they walk out uh, and not everything that, you know, everything else that you labored through. It's, it's, it 
will dismantle you. So I think in this industry, success is finding that kind of balance to understand like, you know, uh, all the, all the good parts of the job mm -hmm. and, and accept like that sometimes it's, you're going to have a bad day here and there, but it, you know, you're hoping that you get the, the reinforcement from your, uh, your coworkers and superiors and whatnot yeah. to kind of help you get through. Yeah, I think that's super important, having that work-life balance, but then also like feeling appreciated. We we don't get that often, right? Um, and it sucks. Like, yeah, it sucks when, like you said, you put so much hard labor into it, but then they, they're so nitpicky about one little mistake, but they never said thank you or, you know, show, show that recognition. I think that's, uh, it makes you feel underappreciated, undervalued. It makes you just want to leave the job as well. Yeah. Um, have you ever had to ask for a raise or even a promotion? Yes, I, I have. Um, can we can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. How like what's what's your thought process? What goes through your mind when you want to ask for a raise or a promotion? Oh man, it was desperation. Uh, <laughs> I needed. I asked for a raise and a promotion, probably like two or three times at the contractor. I basically got him a ton of work. I learned how to estimate for him. I got him all the work, and then managed all the work, and and worked with his workers and. And then by year three of five, I, I was going on worksite visits and interfacing with owners. And essentially, I was his, his right hand. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I see enough of this business. The only thing I don't see is uh, the books. I went to him and I, and I said, you know, I can help you one step further and, and get us to the point where we know how much money we're making, we, we can refine our estimating process and we can make more money. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, at that time I was making like $60,000 and this, and I was living in Brooklyn and it, it, I would eat fish and, and salad for dinner every night. I basically just low, <laughs> low key, low key living. Hey, that's a step above ramen noodles. It, it was, it was great. Look, it worked for me at the time I was younger. I didn't have a family. I, you know, I was lucky enough to not have debt, but I wanted, I wanted more. I wanted more mm -hmm. responsibility. And I, I knew that project management was a six figure minimum. Mm -hmm. Like a project manager was making a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, what, what I'm doing is more than being a project manager. And I know we're making a bunch of money. So I went to him and it asked him, I want to be making a hundred thousand dollars and I want to do more. Uh, and he said, well, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I, I can't, uh, I can't give you that money. I don't have, I don't have that money. You just went straight up and say, Hey, I want to make a hundred thousand dollars. I did. I did. And, and that's, that's why you were making 60 and he knew that you were making 60. Yeah. Who the hell is this guy who thinks that I'm going to give you $40,000? Yeah. Well, I had, okay. I had no idea. I had no okay. counsel. I had no counsel uh -huh. like you, you know, I had no, uh -huh. no, uh, like, no like woman in my life to tell me that I'm being like this rambunctious 20 year old idiot. Right. Um, but no, I, I like, I looked up the market and I knew what I was doing for him and I knew that there was money there. And, and honestly, if, if I didn't get a hundred, like I was like, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. I need to make more than sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, I like tough. that boldness, though. I really, I, I admire that boldness just going in. Because yeah. sometimes, like, sometimes when you don't know the right way of doing things and you just do it, yeah, it sometimes works for you. Like, I think when society like kind of creates a norm of how to do things and you feel like you have to follow it, it sometimes doesn't work to your benefit. Like sometimes <laughs> you just gotta start your own way of doing things. I think you're right. I think a lot of people. If they start to think about stuff a bit much, then 
they start to figure out like little reasons to not do it or they get the anxiety because it's a very uncomfortable thing to have to ask for more money and so yeah so he he basically he said um look uh i can bring you up to 80 and uh and then in six months we can talk about it and um and i was like you know what it's fine in addition to that he mentioned that he was gonna also revamp a little bit about how we did things to give me more vision mm-hmm. into the back end of the work so I can I can actually help him make more money. Um, so over the next six months, nothing changed. Um, and it, it just went on. And I continued to kind of feel like I wanted more and to do more. And I mm-hmm. became kind of a little unhappy, but it, I didn't really do anything about it. I just kind of worked and um, at that time, I think it was maybe in the fourth year, I, Kimberly and I started dating and I got a call randomly from my current employer and asking me if he knew anyone who wanted a job as a project manager. And I was like, let mm-hmm. me think. Uh, and like, I hung up the phone and then I thought to myself, I was like, wait a minute. I, that's me. I want to do that. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so, <laughs> so funny. I called him back. I went in and, and interviewed with him and um, talked mm-hmm. to him and stuff. And it didn't seem like he was ready to do it at that time. But it was definitely, it was, it was awesome to be able to talk to someone who saw my skills. And uh, we had worked on a, a project together and he was like, you're great. I, I really want you. I think you're the best in the business. And just, that was the first time anyone ever gave me praise in in four and a half years in the Jeez. business. And it was like... That feels so good oh, to get that recognition, right? Tremendous. You don't get that often. Tremendous. And it gave me good vibes. And, and so I went back to work and for the same company. And and, uh, mm-hmm. and later on, I got a call from... To call to come in the office for my boss. And uh, he, he sits me down and he goes, uh, Hey, I, I heard you're looking for a job. Oh, I said, what do you mean looking for a job? And he said, said, yeah, no, I I heard uh, someone told me you were looking for a job. And I said, I said, I mean, no, I'm not looking for a job. I just got called and I talked to the guy and and, you know, he was he was hurt uh, and he felt like I was going behind his back. um, And and he's like, well, so when we agreed it, you would be at 80,000 and then go to 100, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you lied to me. And I was like, I didn't lie to you. I'm. I, I was honest with him. Like I didn't, I didn't do anything. You know, I'm still working 100 percent here. And and then um, we kind of we kind of ended the conversation awkwardly and whatnot. And then uh, six months later, I basically got a call from the owners, uh, the the company I work for now, and and they um, he was like, "You ready? You ready to do this?" And I said, "Absolutely, absolutely, I'm ready to do this." <laughs> Nice. And so, uh, nice. yeah, and then and that was it. And then I, I transferred over. So, like, mm-hmm. the the asking for a raise was, like, a nice a nice way to kind of move this thing along. And it got me to where mm-hmm. I'm at now. And it's... So you use that as leverage, right? Yeah. Your, yeah. Um, your current job. When you went into that office and asked your old boss, hey, I want $100,000. Like, did you think he was actually going to give you 100000 Or did you think he was going to, like, negotiate and meet you somewhere in the middle? I think at that point, I was I was confident that I could get a hundred thousand because uh-huh. of the the skills that I was doing, the amount of work I was doing, and and the amount of profit I was generating for the company, uh, and and like what I, what more I could do for that value. Uh, I was yeah. I, I mean it might have been a bit of a naiveness to to mm-hmm. it um, because that's a great thing about being naive though. 
Just the blind, just blind stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's just that night. Uh, going back to what we said, right? Being naive or not knowing the norm, it's it kind of opens opportunities for you sometimes. I think. No, yeah, it makes sense. But he he's a negotiate a born businessman, born negotiator. So uh, if I had done uh-huh. any sort of analysis, I would have, you know, I sh- I should have known that he was gonna try to chop it or, you know, because he was getting a good deal on me for a while. Um, but uh, but look, I mean, to go from sixty to eighty is amazing. I think in in at that time in with my experience, <laughs> three years. You know, uh, would you say that you're a confident person, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think. Uh, Are you more confident on the volleyball court or at work? <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, I have to, <laughs> I have to remember what it was like to play volleyball. It's been a while, huh? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Kevin always referred to me as the guy who will say hello to anyone. And yeah, so, you are. <laughs> you are. When we uh, hang out as a group of friends, you're always like the leader of the pack talking. Like if we need someone to move the table somewhere else or like get a chair or whatever, like you're always saying hello or striking up a conversation with random people like you already knew them somehow. Yeah. It was around, the, it was when I was single. It came from actually mm-hmm. trying to like find girls as dumb as it sounds <laughs> like it was so, i was so scared growing up as a lot of a lot of people are like it's tough to approach people randomly and like mm-hmm. say you know how are you doing like in the dating scene right like that's that's like a big thing that a lot of people had and it, there was at one point i figured out that it, none of it really mattered right and like mm-hmm. you could talk to all these people and like you could say stupid things and nothing really there's nothing happens right so like i think back then it, it dawned on me that you know Everyone is thinking the same thing. Like, you can talk to anyone about anything if you're nice to them initially, right? Like, and you're not demanding in that example you gave, right? Like, people are more willing to help you do things. Like, if they, if, if you can make them feel compassion towards what you need or just see you as a human and, and, uh, then, you know, you're in a, you're in a better position. So I think that's kind of where my confidence comes from. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know what? What's gonna happen? Nothing's gonna happen. With me saying this here, like, like, mm-hmm. I, 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 like what's I, the worst that could happen? What's, Nothing. What's, what's yeah. worst that could happen? Yeah, like you get a no. I mean, you were at a no already. Ah, I like that. Huh? You were at a no already. If you're not going to say anything. Yeah. Ah. Sure. Ah, I like that. How do you build confidence? For me, I think tasks that I complete, uh, feedback that I receive. Mm-hmm. And uh, results. I think the the big thing that I found with when I when I made that lawn bolosa, the hillbilly horseshoes, uh-huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> was at the end of the day, I had a thing that I made, and I could see the process of what it took to make that thing, and all the friends that I have made and making helped me make that thing, and and that I did that right, and it to this day it gives me chills, like just thinking about that was like that point where I realized this is what. I I can do because before that I had no specific desire for any specific job and no like career driven path. And my parents were pretty relaxed and stuff like that. Like, um, like I, so I didn't really have a, a push to do anything specific, you know, and to be able Mm -hmm. to find something that, um, I, I liked and I can do. And I think that that gives me, gives me more confidence and that continually each of these projects that, People say, hey, this needs to get fixed or, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a fucked up situation like Jonathan needs to do this. And then doing that, it's it's like 
the best, it's one of the best feelings that, that uh, I could have. Jonathan, can you describe yourself in terms of your race, ethnicity, gender, generation, age, etc.? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am 37 years old. I'm, I'm white. You're 37? Uh, yeah, I'm 37. Yeah, okay. up there. Uh, <laughs> white man. Uh, yeah, my parents, their families are from Spain, Italy, and Poland. And uh, it's a nice Euro mix. How has your identity, such as your race, gender, um, age, looks, how has it positively or negatively impacted your career? I, I think that um, being a taller white guy in general kind of uh, normalized me to to the general workforce, you know, and in, in that sense, mm -hmm. it's like a positive effect, um, which is unfair. I think in general, it just sucks that that stuff, it, it's part of our, our culture, part of our world. It just sucks. Uh, but I haven't had any sort of workplace um, things come up with, you know, as it relates, as it relates to my race or my looks or anything like that. Has anyone ever like explicitly said, oh, because you're a white man, we're going to like promote you or like, you know, you get this benefit because you're a white man or do you just feel that way because of society and what's going on? No one's ever said it, you know, I just, but I just feel it. Um, I just feel it from in general, just society, just the, seeing the way that people, and this just could be, could be my own head, you know, but like seeing the way that people talk to me and um, no one ever questions that I'm in the office once a week. No one ever asks me where I'm at, you know, um, Okay. but I could see it happening with other people in the office or other people in different roles, like getting questions about that stuff or not speaking to them the same way that they speak to me. Like I could kind of see it and that might be on them, like the way that they just view people in particular for specific mm -hmm. reasons. It might not be a race thing, but it, it might, it might be, I could totally see it being that way. It's a, yeah, it's a thing there. You know? What about being tall? So for example, with me, I, I'm 5'7", and I am, I'm tall for a Vietnamese person. I guess I'm average, maybe above average for like an American, but for a Vietnamese person, I'm, I'm like an elephant to them. And growing up, I was always tall. And I think because I was like the tallest person in my age group, I would automatically be placed in a leadership role. So I was like in this co-ed scouts, Tony Tang Tay, growing up. And I was like the leader of the group just because I was tall. I had no leadership skills, I think, at all. But because I was like placed in that role ever since I was young and continue to be placing more leadership roles in my age group because of my height, uh, I think that's where I kind of like fell into like leadership roles as an adult. Um, do you feel being tall somehow positively impacted your career? Yeah, being tall in general. I think there's some sort of statistic about like people in higher up positions all being like six, two and above or just like a certain height out in the field with contractors. It definitely helps. Yeah. Uh, I had a contractor. The dude was built like a bodybuilder. He was a massive, massive guy. And he mm -hmm. was he was very intimidating. So like I would go to one of his work sites and I he wouldn't be there and, and I'd see something wrong and I, you know, and I'd call him. And, and he would be snarky back to me. He'd be rude back to me. And then, you know, I'd set up a meeting to meet him on site and he'd, he'd be the same kind of way to me, right to my face. And I could see the fact that he's intentionally trying to be intimidating 
and and be that gruff way to try to push someone around and yeah uh you know at that time you know i think kevin and i were doing the uh the vertical jump bible or whatever it's called where uh-huh. we were, we were yeah. lifting weights and stuff like that best best shape of our lives like <laughs> i felt like i felt like you know you're not gonna intimidate me dude like be professional a lot of times some of these guys you run into are they that's kind of what they they look at first they look at you know they look at you and they see is this guy um, is this guy put together? Is he smart? Is he a dork? Is he you know? Can I push him around? Is he weak? Like, mm-hmm. and they'll try to do that. Project managers on different sites will try to push you around if if they don't uh, they don't respect you. So from a very basic um, standpoint, that that kind mm-hmm. of uh, it, it helped me there for sure. What if you're not tall, and what if you don't look intimidating? Um, any recommendations on how? to not let people push you over or push you around? Eye contact. Oh. Always maintain eye contact and like- Ah, because if you look down, you look kind of like uh, timid or afraid, huh? Either timid, afraid, or you're you're not fully present, I think. Um, okay, I think or you're confident. Mind, yeah, mm-hmm. or you're confident, right? Like some, some people, eye contact is, is difficult um, for mm-hmm. them and it's totally, totally cool. But in the office scenario, if you're trying to really if you're engaging with people and there's the option for intimidation, like the eye contact thing just shows you that you're, shows them that you're right here and you're not going anywhere and that you're calm and, and you're just looking right into them, you know? So I, think, I can be like scared shitless and, but as long as I look into their eyes, they won't know. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's other things, body language, right? Like you can't be uh, like twitching your hands and stuff like that. But I think if you were scared chillis and you were looking me in the face, like in the eyes and stuff, even if you're looking at my forehead, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter, right? Like I can't tell because you're, look- okay. you're looking at me. I don't see anything, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, and, and if people are trying to be intimidating, I think mm-hmm. that it, it pushes them back a bit. Lightning round, ready? Sure. What was your very first job? I was a gas station attendant at a mobile gas station. How old were you? 16. What did you want to be when you grew up? Early on, I wanted to be like a sports guy. I wanted to either play basketball or baseball. But uh, mm-hmm. as I, you know, college, uh, sports journalism was what I really yeah. wanted to be. Sports okay. Writer. And uh, don't you have your own podcast? I do. I do. Pucking Thoughts. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Pucking thoughts, right? Okay. Not not the other one. Okay. Correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a, that's about hockey. Yeah, it's about hockey. Okay. Big big fan. My um, buddy and I do it. He's in California, and and so we do it every month. It's it's great. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So that's a little bit of your sports journalism there, yeah, right? Yeah, it's great. Nice. Very cool. What college did you go to? University of Delaware. Were you ever considered as the smart kid? Oh, never. No. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever considered as a dumb kid? No, never. Okay. Never, never. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. What do your parents do for work? Both my parents are retired. Uh, my okay. dad was a uh, letter carrier, a postman. My mom was a, um, a secretary, and she worked at uh, numerous car companies, okay. um, just working for high-level execs and stuff like that. What did your parents want you to be? Happy. That was it. Aww. Yeah. If money wasn't an issue and you could be anything you wanted to be, what would it be? I would love to be one of these like deep sea diver people who go and look at the big tankers that have, have fallen down under under the water oh. and basically just kind of try and find like all these artifacts and stuff like that. It's like, huh. like the colors down there, the mm-hmm. quietness and like I love the water and just finding stuff and swimming around. I always thought that would be pretty cool to do. Would you swim with sharks? 
No, no. <laughs> okay, no okay, okay. Uh, celebrity crush. Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. Oh, Kim, you got competition. She knows. She knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, what video game are you currently playing? Currently, uh, with your husband, as much as I can, playing uh, Apex Legends. Who's better, you or him? Oh, Kevin's awesome. Kevin's the best. <laughs> Kevin's, Kevin's the best at Mario Kart and virtually every other game that is ever created. When we play board games, all of our friends, whenever Kevin's involved, the number one rule of playing the board game is to not let Kevin win. <laughs> Even if it means you go, you come in last. As long as Kevin doesn't win, everyone wins. <laughs> That's messed up. That's so messed up. Do you participate in any extracurricular activities? I try to keep active with sports, play hockey, play beach volleyball, grass volleyball, indoor volleyball. I play frisbee on the weekends. There's a ultimate frisbee. I do yard work is, is fun. Gardening is fun. Projects around the house is, is okay. always fun. And what do you attribute your success to? I couldn't have done it without my loving wife. Do you do sock shoe, sock shoe, or sock, sock, shoe, shoe? Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. How many glasses of water do you drink in a day? Probably eight to 10. What's the best city to live in? New York City, you know, or Park Slope. Uh, last question, Kevin asked me to ask you, what the hell is your problem? <laughs> the hell is your problem, man? All right, career advice. What would you give someone who is in the transition of trying to figure out um, what career path they should be in? Don't be afraid to try new things that you, know, you might not be comfortable with doing because you haven't done them before and you might feel like you're not capable of doing them. Definitely push ahead and do the best you can and try to find something that you like to do, you know, that, that is something that's rewarding to you and makes you feel good. And then you won't really be working so much. It's more like you're just kind of doing what you really like to do and, and you're getting mm -hmm. gratification from it. What is your advice for someone who wants to advance in their career or even like who wants to ask for a raise or a promotion? I think you have to do your homework, figure out what skills you have and what responsibilities you are doing and um, look at what people in your neck of the woods and in your industry are, are getting paid to do that same kind of thing. Look How do you find that out? I, you could go to uh, Feed Learning, I think. No, I don't have that info. I mean, you can, you could probably. I'll add that info. I can add that info. Okay. I, I think, I think it could be helpful. I think there's, okay. there's websites uh, like Glassdoor or uh -huh. there's uh -huh. some, you know, you could Google it kind of easily. And, and obviously they're not going to be a hundred percent applicable because every business is different. Right. So like if someone's, if someone's making a lot of money in your role, like maybe that company is like 200 people and the company mm -hmm. you have is like 10, you're looking at, you know, apples to oranges there. So you have to kind mm -hmm. of temper what your place is in that company and see how much you think is available to you, you know, and, and understand a little bit more about what your role is. If you're lucky enough to be in a role where you can say, hey, I did X, Y, and Z and it saved the company X, Y, and Z, then you can say, I am, I'm worth this, right? And, and mm -hmm. that logically to them would be, you know, it's easier for them to understand than just kind of a, hey, you know, everybody in this industry makes this amount, like I want to make this amount. I think if you, if you come with information directly as it applies to your, to your role and their business and how you can do more, 
mm-hmm. you know, with with this. Uh, like I think you package all that together, you, you put yourself in a good position. Okay. What is your advice for how to build strong and authentic work relationships? I know we talked a bit about that earlier, but any last advice? Because you're you're really good. You're a likable person. Like, how do you get people to um, really want to work with you? Thank you. Um, I think that you just put the effort in. I think you you have to be viewing work as a as a happy place and a collegial place. And if there are people in there that are not of that same mindset, then you know focus on some of the people that are. I mean, I, I think uh, you you really want to be that that person when people look to you. That it's a positive mm-hmm. uh, feeling. And I think by being genuine, being honest, being kind and compassionate. It gives you the the right start to um, creating a good work relationship with that person. Nice. Any books, resources, articles? Uh, resources, just Google Docs. I would say Excel spreadsheets, stuff like that, to remain organized. Uh, like, if you're a mobile a mobile person, if you have a mobile job, that is uh, the number one tool. I think is is the ability to access data from anywhere on any sort of situation. And um, I think Blink. Is a good book to read. I think that's a Gladwell book. It basically, what is talk, it about? It talks about how, in like the first five seconds or two seconds or whatever milliseconds of talk of putting yourself in front of someone, like what they see and what they interpret, and like how they're already creating a fabric for who they think that you are based on how they perceive you and whatnot. Mm-hmm. All right, Jonathan. Well, thank you so much for sharing with me your experience, your vulnerable moments. I'm really happy to hear that you found uh, a job in a career that you really liked, and you found it during when you created the Hillbilly Horseshoe. That little pivotal <laughs> moment of yours. Um, and then it's awesome that although you didn't go forward with the sports journalism route after college, you still ended up doing it somehow with your Pucking Thoughts podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you you know, you, you just somehow it just the puzzle pieces fell together. And um, so I'm happy for you with that. So thanks for having me on. Uh, this has been really oh. <laughs> cool. I really like uh, I listened to all the episodes so far. And this is really awesome. Oh, and this is going to be thanks, uh, a really helpful thing for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm excited. So that wraps the episode. If you're looking for more tips and tricks on how to navigate sticky situations at work, check out the library at feedlearning.com. And if you're an HR professional, founder, or manager, and would like to get some training or coaching for yourself or team, reach out to me and I'd be happy to help out. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or for future guests, you can send me a message at hello at feedlearning.com or leave me a voicemail on my Google Voice at 805-262-7782. Until next time, follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn. Subscribe to People Podcast by Feed Learning on iTunes or Spotify and share this episode with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. See you later.